Section 25 of Swan's Way. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dennis Sayers. Swan's Way by Marcel Proust. Translated by C. K. Scott Moncrief. Section 25. Swann was extremely fond of the Princesse de Lome, and the sight of her recalled to him Germant, a property close to Cambrai, and all that country which he so dearly loved, and had ceased to visit so as not to be separated from Odette. Slipping into the manner, half artistic, half amorous, with which he could always manage to amuse the princess, a manner which came to him quite naturally whenever he dipped for a moment into the old social atmosphere, and wishing to also express in words, for his own satisfaction, the longing that he felt for the country. Ah! he exclaimed, or rather intoned, in such a way as to be audible at once to Madame de Saint-Uvert, to whom he spoke, and to Madame de Lomme, for whom he was speaking. Behold our charming princess! See, she has come up on purpose from Germant to hear St. Francis preach to the birds, and has only just had time like a dear little titmouse, to go and pick a few little hips and haws, and put them in her hair. There are even some drops of dew upon them still, a little of the hoar-frost which must be making the duchess down there shiver. It is very pretty indeed, my dear princess. What? The princess came up on purpose from Germant, but that's too wonderful i never knew i'm quite bewildered madame saint-hubert protested with quaint simplicity being but little accustomed to swann's way of speaking and then examining the princess's headdress why you're quite right it is copied from what shall i say not chestnuts no oh it's a delightful idea but how can the princess have known what was going to be on my programme the musicians didn't tell me even swann who was accustomed when he was with a woman whom he had kept up the habit of addressing in terms of gallantry to pay her delicate compliments which most of the people would not and need not understand did not condescend to explain to Madame de Saint-Duvert that he had been speaking metaphorically. As for the princess, she was in fits of laughter, both because Swann's wit was highly appreciated by her set, and because she would never hear a compliment addressed to herself without finding it exquisitely subtle and irresistibly amusing indeed i'm delighted charles if my little hips and haws meet with your approval 
But tell me, why did you bow to that Combremé person? Are you also her neighbour in the country? Madame de Saint-Ouvert, seeing that the princess seemed quite happy talking to Swann, had drifted away. But you are yourself, princess. I, why, they must have countries everywhere, those creatures. Don't I wish I had? No, not the Cambremé. Her own people, she was a Le Grandin, and used to come to Cambrai. I don't know whether you are aware that you are Comtesse de Cambrai, and that the chapter owes you adieu. I don't know what the chapter owes me, but I do know that I'm touched for a few hundred francs every year by the curé, which is a due that I could very well do without. But surely these Combremets have rather a startling name. It ends just in time, <laughs> but it ends badly, she said with a laugh. It begins no better. Swann took the point. Yes, that double abbreviation. Some one very angry and very proper who didn't dare to finish the first word. But since he couldn't stop himself beginning the second, he'd have done better to finish the first and be done with it. <laughs> Oh, we are indulging in the most refined form of humour, my dear Charles, in the very best of taste. But how tiresome it is that I never see you now, she went on in a coaxing tone. I do so love talking to you. Just imagine, I could not make that idiot Froberville see that there was anything funny about the name Combremet. <laughs> Do you agree that life is a dreadful business? It's only when I see you that I stop feeling bored. Which was probably not true, but Swann and the Princess had the same way of looking at the little things of life the effect, if not the cause of which was a close analogy between their modes of expression and even of pronunciation. This similarity was not striking, because no two things could have been more unlike than their two voices. But if one took the trouble to imagine Swann's utterances divested of the sonority that enwrapped them, of the moustache from under which they emerged, one found that they were the same phrases, the same inflections, that they had the tone of the Germant set. On important matters, Swann and the Princess had not an idea in common, but since Swann had become so melancholy, and was always in that trembling condition which precedes a flood of tears he had the same need to speak about his grief that a murderer has to tell someone about his crime and when he heard the princess say that 
life was a dreadful business he felt as much comforted as if she had spoken to him of odette yes life is a dreadful business we must meet more often my dear friend what is so nice about you is that you are not cheerful we could spend a most pleasant evening together i'm sure we could why not come down to germant my mother-in-law would be wild with joy it's supposed to be very ugly down there but i must say i find the neighborhood not at all unattractive i have a horror of picturesque spots i know it well it's delightful replied swann it's almost too beautiful too much alive for me just at present it's a country to be happy in it's perhaps because i have lived there but things there speak to me so as soon as a breath of wind gets up and the cornfields begin to stir i feel that someone is going to appear suddenly that i am going to hear some news and those little houses by the water's edge oh, i should be quite wretched oh my dear charles do take care Ooh, there's that appalling rambignon woman she's seen me hide me somewhere do tell me again quickly what it was that happened to her i get so mixed up she's just married off her daughter or her lover i never can remember perhaps both to each other oh no i remember now she's been dropped by her prince pretend to be talking so that the poor old berenice shan't come and invite me to dinner anyhow i'm going listen my dear charles now that i have seen you once in a blue moon won't you let me carry you off and take you to the princesse de parmes who would be so pleased to see you you know and bassin too for that matter he's meeting me there if one didn't get news of you sometimes from mem remember i never see you at all now swann declined having told madame de charlus that on leaving madame de saint Uvers, he would go straight home he did not care to run the risk by going on now to the princesse de parmes of missing a message which he had all the time been hoping to see brought in to him by one of the footmen during the party and which he was perhaps going to find left with his own porter at home poor swann said madame de lone that night to her husband he is most charming but he does look so dreadfully unhappy you will see for yourself for he has promised to dine with us one of these days i do feel that it's really absurd that a man of his intelligence should let himself be made to suffer by a creature of that kind who isn't even interesting 
for they tell me she's an absolute idiot she concluded with the wisdom invariably shown by people who not being in love themselves feel that a clever man ought to be unhappy only about such persons as are worth his while which is rather like being astonished that anyone should condescend to die of cholera at the bidding of so insignificant a creature as the common bacillus swann now wished to go home but just as he was making his escape general de froberville caught him and asked him for an introduction to madame de cambremet and he was obliged to go back into the room to look for her i say swann i'd rather be married to that little woman than killed by savages what do you say the words killed by savages pierced swann's aching heart and at once he felt the need of continuing the conversation ah he began some fine lives have been lost in that way there was you remember that explorer whose remains dumont durville brought back la perouse and he was at once happy again as though he had named odette he was a fine character and interests me very much does la perouse he ended sadly oh yes of course la perouse said the general it's quite a well-known name there's a street called that do you know anyone in the rue la perouse asked swann excitedly only madame de chanlivaux the sister of that good fellow chauspierre she gave a most amusing theatre party the other evening that's a house that will be really smart some day you'll see oh so she lives in the rue la perouse it's attractive I, I like that street it's so sombre indeed it isn't you can't have been in it for a long time it's not at all sombre now they're beginning to build all round there when swann did finally introduce monsieur de froberville to the young madame de cambremet since it was the first time that she had heard the general's name she hastily outlined upon her lips the smile of joy and surprise with which she would have greeted him if she had never in the whole of her life heard anything else for as she did not yet know all the friends of her new family whenever anyone was presented to her she assumed that he must be one of them and thinking that she would show her tact by appearing to have heard such a lot about him since her marriage she would hold out her hand with an air of hesitation which was meant as a proof at once of the inculcated reserve which she had to overcome and of the spontaneous friendliness which successfully overcame it and so her parents-in-law whom she still regarded as the most eminent 
pair in France, declared that she was an angel, all the more that they preferred to appear in marrying her to their son, to have yielded to the attraction, rather of her natural charm, than of her considerable fortune. It's easy to see that you are a musician heart and soul, madame, said the general, alluding to the incident of the candle. Meanwhile, the concert had begun again, and Swann saw that he could not now go before the end of the new number. He suffered greatly from being shut up among all these people, whose stupidity and absurdities wounded him all the more cruelly since, being ignorant of his love, incapable, had they known of it, of taking any interest, or, or of doing more than smile at it, as at some childish joke, or deplore it as an act of insanity. They made it appear to him in the aspect of a subjective state, which existed for himself alone, whose reality there was nothing external to confirm. He suffered overwhelmingly, to the point at which even the sound of the instruments made him want to cry, from having to prolong his exile in this place to which Odette would never come, to which no one, nothing, was aware of her existence, from which she was entirely absent. But suddenly it was as though she had entered, and this apparition tore him with such anguish that his hand rose impulsively to his heart, what had happened was that the violin had risen to a series of high notes on which it rested as though expecting something, an expectancy which it prolonged without ceasing to hold on to the notes. In the exaltation with which it already saw the expected object approaching, and with a desperate effort to continue until its arrival, to welcome it before itself expired, to keep the way open for a moment longer, with all its remaining strength, that the stranger might enter in, as one holds a door open that would otherwise automatically close. And before Swann had had time to understand what was happening, to think, it is the little phrase from Ventui's sonata. I mustn't listen. All his memories of the days when Odette had been in love with him, which he had succeeded up till that evening in keeping invisible in the depths of his being, deceived by this sudden reflection of a season of love, whose son, they supposed, had dawned again, had awakened from their slumber, had taken wing and risen to sing maddeningly in his ears, without pity for his present desolation, the forgotten strains of happiness. In place of the abstract expressions, the time when I was happy, 
the time when I was loved, which he had often used until then, and without much suffering, for his intelligence had not embodied in them anything of the past save fictitious extracts which preserved none of the reality. He now recovered everything that had fixed unalterably the peculiar, volatile essence of that lost happiness. He could see it all. The snowy, curled petals of the chrysanthemum which she had tossed after him into his carriage, which he had kept pressed to his lips. The address Maison Dorée, embossed on the note-paper on which he had read, My hand trembles so as I write to you. The frowning contraction of her eyebrows when she said pleadingly, You won't let it be very long before you send for me. He could smell the heated iron of the barber whom he used to have in to singe his hair, while Loredan went to fetch the little working-girl. Could feel the torrents of rain which fell so often that spring, the ice-cold homeward drive in the Victoria, by moonlight, all the network of mental habits of seasonable impressions, of sensory reactions, which had extended over a series of weeks its uniform meshes, by which his body now found itself inextricably held. At that time he had been satisfying a sensual curiosity to know what were the pleasures of those people who lived for love alone. He had supposed that he could stop there, that he would not be obliged to learn their sorrows also. How small a thing the actual charm of Odette was, now, in comparison with that formidable terror which extended it like a cloudy halo all around her, that enormous anguish of not knowing at every hour of the day and night what she had been doing, of not possessing her wholly at all times and in all places. Alas, he recalled the accents in which she had exclaimed, but I can see you at any time. I am always free. She who was never free now. The interest, the curiosity that she had shown in his life, her passionate desire that he should do her the favor of which it was he who then had felt suspicious as of a possibly tedious waste of his time and disturbance of his arrangements, of granting her access to his study, how she had been obliged to beg that he would let her take him to the Verderin, and when he did allow her to come to him once a month, how she had first, before he would let himself be swayed, had to repeat what a joy it would be to her, the custom of their seeing each other daily, for which she had longed at a time when to him 
it had seemed only a tiresome distraction, for which, since that time, she had conceived a distaste, and had definitely broken herself of it, while it had become for him so insatiable, so dolorous a need. Little had he suspected how truly he spoke when, on their third meeting, as she repeated, but why don't you let me come to you oftener? He had told her, laughing, and in a vein of gallantry, that it was for fear of forming a hopeless passion. Now, alas, it still happened at times that she wrote to him from a restaurant or hotel, on paper which bore a printed address, but printed in letters of fire that seared his heart. Written from the Hotel Vouillemont. What on earth could she have gone there for? With whom? What happened there? He remembered the gas jets that were being extinguished along the Boulevard des Italiens, when he had met her, when all hope was gone among the errant shades upon that night, which had seemed to him almost supernatural, and which now, that night of a period, when he had not even to ask himself whether he would be annoying her by looking for her, and by finding her, so certain was he that she knew no greater happiness than to see him and to let him take her home belonged indeed to a mysterious world to which one may never return again once its doors are closed and swann could distinguish standing motionless before that scene of happiness in which it lived again a wretched figure which filled him with such pity because he did not at first recognize who it was that he must lower his head lest any one should observe that his eyes were filled with tears it was himself when he realized this his pity ceased he was jealous now of that other self whom she had loved he was jealous of those men of whom he had so often said without much suffering perhaps she's in love with them now that he had exchanged the vague idea of loving in which there is no love for the petals of the chrysanthemum and the letter-heading of the maison d'or for they were full of love. And then, his anguish becoming too keen, he passed his hand over his forehead, let the monocle drop from his eye, and wiped its glass. And doubtless, if he had caught sight of himself at that moment, he would have added to the collection of the monocles which he had already identified, this one which he removed, like an importunate worrying thought from his head, while from its misty surface with his handkerchief he sought to obliterate his cares. 
There are in the music of the violin, if, if one does not see the instrument itself, and so cannot relate what one hears to its form, which modifies the fullness of its sound, accents which are so closely akin to those of certain contralto voices, that one has the illusion that a singer has taken her place amid the orchestra. One raises one's eyes. One sees only the wooden case, magical as a Chinese box. But at moments one is still tricked by the deceiving appeal of the siren. At times, too, one believes that one is listening to a captive spirit, struggling in the darkness of its masterful box, a box quivering with enchantment, like a devil immersed in a strop of holy water. Sometimes, again, it is in the air at large, like a pure and supernatural creature that reveals to the ear, as it passes, its invisible message. As though the musicians were not nearly so much playing the little phrase, as performing the rites on which it insisted before it would consent to appear, as proceeding to utter the incantations necessary to procure and to prolong for a few moments the miracle of its apparition, Swan, who was no more able now to see it than if it had belonged to a world of ultraviolet light, who experienced something like the refreshing sense of a metamorphosis in the momentary blindness with which he had been struck as he approached it. Swann felt that it was present, like a protective goddess, a confidant of his love, who, so as to be able to come to him through the crowd, and to draw him aside to speak to him, had disguised herself in this sweeping cloak of sound. And as she passed him, light, soothing, as softly murmured as the perfume of a flower, telling him what she had to say, every word of which he closely scanned, sorry to see them fly away so fast, he made, involuntarily with his lips, the motion of kissing, as it went by him, the harmonious, fleeting form. He felt that he was no longer in exile and alone, since she, who addressed herself to him, spoke to him in a whisper of Odette. For he had no longer, as of old, the impression that Odette and he were not known to the little phrase, had it not often been the witness of their joys? True that, as often, it had warned him of their frailty. And indeed, whereas in that distant time he had divined an element of suffering in its smile, in its limpid and disillusioned intonation, Tonight he found there rather the charm of a resignation that was almost gay. Of those sorrows, 
of which the little phrase had spoken to him then, which he had seen it, without his being touched by them himself, carry past him, smiling on its sinuous and rapid course, of those sorrows which were now become his own, without his having any hope of being ever delivered from them. It seemed to say to him, as once it had said of his happiness, what does all that matter? It is all nothing. And Swann's thoughts were borne for the first time on a wave of pity and tenderness towards that Venturi, towards that unknown, exalted brother who also must have suffered so greatly. What could his life have been from the depths of what well of sorrow could he have drawn that god-like strength, that unlimited power of creation? When it was the little phrase that spoke to him of the vanity of his sufferings, Swann found a sweetness in that very wisdom which, but a little while back, had seemed to him intolerable when he thought that he could read it on the faces of indifferent strangers who would regard his love as a digression that was without importance. T'was because the little phrase, unlike them, whatever opinion it might hold on the short duration of these states of the soul, saw in them something not, as everyone else saw, less serious than the events of everyday life, but, on the contrary, so far superior to everyday life as to be alone worthy of the trouble of expressing it. Those graces of an intimate sorrow, t'was them that the phrase endeavoured to imitate, to create anew, and even their essence, for all that it consists in being incommunicable and in appearing trivial, to every one save him who has experience of them, the little phrase had captured, had rendered visible. So much so, that it made their value be confessed, their divine sweetness be tasted by all those same onlookers, provided only that they were in any sense musical, who the next moment would ignore, would disown them in real life, in every individual love that came into being beneath their eyes. Doubtless, the form in which it had codified those graces could not be analyzed into any logical elements. But ever since, more than a year before, discovering to him many of the riches of his own soul, the love of music had been born, and for a time, at least, had dwelt in him. Swann had regarded musical motifs as actual ideas of another world, of another order, ideas veiled in shadows unknown, impenetrable by the human mind, which, nonetheless, were perfectly distinct one from another, unequal among themselves in value and in significance. 
when, after that first evening at the Verdurins, he had had the little phrase played over to him again, and had sought to disentangle from his confused impressions how it was that, like a perfume or a caress, it swept over and enveloped him. He had observed that it was to the closeness of the intervals between the five notes which composed it, and to the constant repetition of two of them, that was due that impression of a frigid, a contracted sweetness. But, in reality, he knew that he was basing this conclusion not upon the phrase itself, but merely upon certain equivalents, substituted for his mind's convenience, for the mysterious entity of which he had become aware before ever he knew the Verdurins, at that earlier party, when for the first time he had heard the sonata played. He knew that his memory of the piano falsified still further the perspective in which he saw the music, that the field open to the musician is not a miserable stave of seven notes, but an immeasurable keyboard, still almost all of it unknown, on which, here and there only, separated by the gross darkness of its unexplored tracts, some few among the millions of keys, keys of tenderness, of passion, of courage, of serenity, which compose it, each one differing from all the rest, as one universe differs from another, had been discovered by certain great artists, who do us the service when they awaken in us the emotion corresponding to the theme which they have found, of showing us what richness, what variety lies hidden, unknown to us, in that great, black, impenetrable night, discouraging exploration of our soul which we have been content to regard as valueless and waste and void. Ventoux had been one of those musicians. In his little phrase, albeit it presented to the mind's eye a clouded surface, there was contained, one felt, a matter so consistent, so explicit, to which the phrase gave so new, so original a force, that those who had once heard it preserved the memory of it in the treasure chamber of their minds. Swann would repair to it as to a conception of love and happiness, of which at once he knew as well in what respects it was peculiar as he would know of the Princesse de Cleves, or of René, should either of those titles occur to him, even when he was not thinking of the little phrase. It existed, latent in his mind, in the same way as certain other conceptions, without material equivalent, such as our notions of light, of sound, of perspective, of bodily desire the rich possessions wherewith our inner temple is diversified and adorned. Perhaps we shall lose them, 
perhaps they will be obliterated if we return to nothing in the dust. But so long as we are alive, we can no more bring ourselves to a state in which we shall not have known them than we can with regard to any material object. Then we can, for example, doubt the luminosity of a lamp that has just been lighted, in view of the changed aspect of everything in the room, from which has vanished even the memory of the darkness. In that way, Ventoux's phrase, like some theme, say, in Tristan, which represents to us also a certain acquisition of sentiment, has espoused our mortal state, had endued a vesture of humanity that was affecting enough. Its destiny was linked for the future with that of the human soul, of which it was one of the special, the most distinctive ornaments. Perhaps it is not being that is the true state, and all our dream of life is without existence. But, if so, we feel that it must be that these phrases of music, these conceptions which exist in relation to our dream, are nothing either. We shall perish, but we have for our hostages these divine captives who shall follow and share our fate and death in their company, is something less bitter, less inglorious, perhaps even less certain. So Swann was not mistaken in believing that the phrase of the sonnet did really exist. Human as it was from this point of view, it belonged, none the less, to an order of supernatural creatures whom we have never seen but whom, in spite of that, we recognize and acclaim with rapture when some explorer of the unseen contrives to coax one forth, to bring it down from that divine world to which he has access, to shine for a brief moment in the firmament of ours. This was what Van Tull had done for the little phrase. Swann felt that the composer had been content with the musical instruments at his disposal to draw aside its veil, to make it visible, following and respecting its outlines with a hand so loving, so prudent, so delicate and so sure, that the sound altered at every moment, blunting itself to indicate a shadow, springing back into life when it must follow the curve of some more bold projection. And one proof that Swann was not mistaken when he believed in the real existence of this phrase was that anyone with an ear at all delicate for music would at once have detected the imposture had Van Tull endowed with less power to see and to render its forms sought to dissemble by adding a line here and there of his own invention the dimness of his vision or the feebleness of his hand the phrase had disappeared swann knew 
that it would come again at the end of the last movement, after a long passage which Madame Verdurin's pianist always skipped. There were, in this passage, some admirable ideas which Swann had not distinguished on first hearing of the sonata, and which he now perceived, as if they had, in the cloakroom of his memory, divested themselves of their uniform disguise of novelty. Swann listened to all the scattered themes which entered into the composition of the phrase, as its premises enter into the inevitable conclusion of a syllogism. He was assisting at the mystery of its birth. Audacity, he exclaimed to himself, as inspired, perhaps, as a Lavoisier or an Ampere, the audacity of a Vantul making experiment, discovering the secret laws that govern an unknown force, driving across a region unexplored, towards the one possible goal, the invisible team in which he has placed his trust, and which he never may discern. How charming the dialogue which Swann now heard between piano and violin at the beginning of the last passage. The suppression of human speech, so far from letting fancy reign there uncontrolled, as one might have thought, had eliminated it altogether. Never was spoken language of such inflexible necessity. Never had it known questions so pertinent, such obvious replies. At first the piano complained alone, like a bird deserted by its mate. The violin heard and answered it, as from a neighboring tree. It was at the first beginning of the world, as if there were not yet but these twain upon the earth, or rather in this world closed against all the rest, so fashioned by the logic of its creator, that in it there should never be any but themselves, the world of this sonata. Was it a bird? Was it the soul not yet made perfect of the little phrase? Was it a fairy, invisibly somewhere lamenting, whose plaint the piano heard and tenderly repeated? Its cries were so sudden that the violinist must snatch up his bow and race to catch them as they came. Marvellous bird! The violinist seemed to wish to charm, to tame, to woo, to win it. Already it had passed into his soul. Already the little phrase which it evoked shook like a medium's the body of the violinist, possessed indeed. Swann knew that the phrase was going to speak to him once again and his personality was now so divided that the strain of waiting for the imminent moment when he would find himself face to face once more with the phrase convulsed him in one of those sobs which a fine line of poetry or a piece of alarming news will wring from us, not when we are alone, 
but when we repeat one or the other to a friend, in whom we see ourselves reflected, like a third person, whose probable emotion softens him. It reappeared, but this time, to remain poised in the air, and to sport there for a moment only, as though immobile and shortly to expire. And so Swann lost nothing of the precious time for which it lingered. It was still there, like an iridescent bubble that floats for a while unbroken, as a rainbow, when its brightness fades, seems to subside, then soars again, before it is extinguished, is glorified with greater splendor than it has ever shown. So to the two colors which the phrase had hitherto allowed to appear, it added others now, chords shot with every hue in the prism, and made them sing. Swan dared not move, and would have liked to compel all the other people in the room to remain still also, as if the slightest movement might embarrass the magic presence, supernatural, delicious, frail, that would so easily vanish. But no one, as it happened, dreamed of speaking. The ineffable utterance of one solitary man, absent, perhaps dead. Swann did not know whether Vantul were still alive, breathed out above the rites of those two hierophants, sufficed to attest the attention of three hundred minds, and made of that stage on which a soul was thus called into being one of the noblest altars on which a supernatural ceremony could be performed. It followed that, when the phrase at last was finished, and only its fragmentary echoes floated among the subsequent themes which had already taken its place, if Swann at first was annoyed to see the Comtesse de Montrandet, famed for her imbecilities, lean over towards him to confide in him her impressions, before even the sonata had come to an end, he could not refrain from smiling, and perhaps also found an underlying sense, which she was incapable of perceiving, in the words that she used. Dazzled by the virtuosity of the performers, the Comtesse exclaimed to Swann, it's astonishing. I have never seen anything to beat it. But a scrupulous regard for accuracy, making her correct her first assertion, she added the reservation, anything to beat it, since the table turning. From that evening, Swann understood that the feeling which Odette had once had for him would never revive that his hopes of happiness would not be realized now. And the days on which, by a lucky chance, she had once more shown herself kind and loving to him, or if she had paid him any attention, he recorded those apparent and misleading signs of a slight movement on her part 
towards him, with the same tender and skeptical solicitude, the desperate joy that people reveal, who, when they are nursing a friend in the last days of an incurable malady, relate as significant facts of infinite value, yesterday he went through his accounts himself, and actually corrected a mistake that we had made in adding them up. He ate an egg to-day, and seemed quite to enjoy it. If he digests it properly, we shall try him with a, a cutlet to-morrow. Although they themselves know that these things are meaningless on the eve of an inevitable death. No doubt Swann was assured that if he had now been living at a distance from Odette, he would gradually have lost all interest in her, so that he would never have been glad to learn that she was leaving Paris forever. He would have had the courage to remain there, but he had not the courage to go. He had often thought of going, now that he was once again at work upon his essay on Vermeer, he wanted to return, for a few days at least, to The Hague, to Dresden, to Brunswick. He was certain that a toilette of Diana, which had been acquired by the Mauritius at the Goldschmidt sale, as a Nicholas Mace, was in reality a Vermeer and he would have liked to be able to examine the picture on the spot, so as to strengthen his conviction. But to leave Paris while Odette was there, and even when she was not there, for in strange places where our sensations have not been numbed by habit, we refresh, we revive an old pain, was for him so cruel a project that he felt himself to be incapable of entertaining it incessantly in his mind, only because he knew himself to be resolute in his determination never to put it into effect. But it would happen that, while he was asleep, the intention to travel would reawaken in him, without his remembering that this particular tour was impossible, and would be realized. One night he dreamed that he was going away for a year, leaning from the window of the train towards a young man on the platform who wept as he bade him farewell. He was seeking to persuade this young man to come away also. The train began to move. He awoke in alarm, and remembered that he was not going away, that he would see Odette that evening, and next day, and almost every day, and then, being still deeply moved by his dream, he would thank heaven for those special circumstances which made him independent, thanks to which he could remain in Odette's vicinity, and could even succeed in making her allow him to see her sometimes, and, counting over the list of his advantages, his social position, his fortune, from which she stood too often in need of assistance, not to shrink from the prospect of a definite rupture, having even, so people said, an ulterior plan of getting him to marry her. 
his friendship with Monsieur de Charlus, which it must be confessed, had never won him very great favour from a debt, but which gave him the pleasant feeling that she was always hearing complimentary things said about him by this common friend for whom she had so great an esteem. And even his own intelligence, the whole of which he employed in weaving every day, a fresh plot which would make his presence, if not agreeable, at any rate necessary to Odette. He thought of what might have happened to him if all these advantages had been lacking. He thought that if he had been, like so many other men, poor and humble, without resources, forced to undertake any task that might be offered to him, or tied down by parents or by a wife, he might have been obliged to part from Odette, that that dream, the terror of which was still so recent, might well have been true. And he said to himself, People don't know when they are happy. They're never so unhappy as they think they are. But he reflected that this existence had lasted already for several years, that all that he could now hope for was that it should last for ever, that he would sacrifice his work, his pleasures, his friends, in fact, the whole of his life, to the daily expectation of a meeting which, when it occurred, would bring him no happiness. And he asked himself whether he was not mistaken, whether the circumstances that had favoured their relations and had prevented a final rupture had not done a disservice to his career, whether the outcome to be desired was not that as to which he rejoiced that it happened only in dreams, his own departure. And he said to himself that people did not know when they were unhappy, that they were never so happy as they supposed. End of section 25